Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation, a series of lectures in which talking person Jeremy Hardy thinks of things and says them in front of people. This week, how to grow up. Thank you. Good evening. As many of you will already be aware, tonight's programme is called How to Grow Up. And joining me to put flesh on the bones of my carcass are two people in their own right. Rebecca Front. Hello. And Gordon Kennedy. Hello. Now, Gordon, you need no introduction and certainly don't deserve one, but you're perhaps best known for playing Robin Hood's right-wing sidekick, Little John, in the not-very-grown-up BBC costume drama documentary series Maid Marion Before the Food Stores. <laughs> That's right, Jeremy. And stupidly, Robin got killed in the last series. Yep. Yeah, see, Doctor Who's got that one covered. You really should have spoken to the writers about that. We were trying to be faithful to the original story. You have so much to learn. Now, Rebecca, <laughs> delighted to have you with us again. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Now, I don't know whether you prefer to be called an actor or a lady actressette, but I suppose, I suppose acting is a perfect career for a woman because you're already wearing makeup. <laughs> I suppose so, Jeremy, yes. And when you're not picking up awards, Gordon... You're raising, you're raising children in a having-it-all, juggling family and work, ambitious and only slightly neglectful way. <laughs> and yet you're still very much a woman. Thank you. Indeed, unafraid of being typecast, you often play women on the television. <laughs> including a female chief superintendent in Lewis, the hard-hitting expose of Europe's murder capital, Oxford. <laughs> Tell us a bit about that. Well, you know, it's kind of heartbeat with oak panels. Overqualified serial killers. Mm -hmm. Professors impaled on punt poles. And uh, my character is called Jean Innocent. Good idea. Yeah. Just avoids any confusion among the viewers. Yeah. <laughs> See, Gordon, write as you think. Yeah, actually, Jeremy, I just did a Taggart. Oh, Gordon. <laughs> Taggart, the Glaswegian police series. Oh, be a murderer. If I told you that, I'd have to kill you. Ah, gritty Scottish, you see, Rebecca. They don't muck about up there. They're hard. Yep, even the main character's dead. What? <laughs> Doesn't matter. Anyway, on with the programme. Since we're talking about growing up, I want to conduct a social experiment with both of you. Now, it's something I know some therapists do. I've got some old magazines here mm. and some crayons and scissors and glue, and I just want to try and think about your journey to adulthood. And just, I want you to recreate whatever you feel, and we'll have a look at the end of the programme. OK, okay. great. Yeah. So, how to grow up. Superficially, one might say that the best way to grow up is rich, white, male and heterosexual, certainly in terms of opportunities. But it depends what you want from life. If you feel that it's acceptable to wear yellow corduroys, it's almost certain that you are rich, white, male and heterosexual. It might be said that your background has given you the confidence to wear yellow corduroys, but it has also deprived you of the self-awareness needed to realise that yellow corduroys are not acceptable. In other words, people who seem to have had their life on a plate might not have acquired the wisdom gained by experience. On the other hand, a person does not need to have had a tough childhood to know that life is tough. It's far better to give a child the happiest upbringing possible and wait till their GCSEs are out of the way before breaking to them gently that it's all going to be downhill from now. <laughs> 
Friedrich Nietzsche thought that that which does not destroy us makes us stronger. But he obviously never caught TB or whacked his knee on the drawer of a filing cabinet. <laughs> it's true that greatness can rise out of adversity, but why should someone have to grow up blind and in a brothel to play the blues when they can just be like Eric Clapton and copy people who did? <laughs> In terms of social class, if you want to be in a particular one, your best bet is to grow up in it because we're not a socially mobile country. Class is a particularly emotional subject for me because I grew up lower middle class, which is neither one thing nor the other. I get upset by social deprivation, but also by people holding their knife like a pen. <laughs> If I were properly middle class, I wouldn't know anybody who holds their knife like a pen. But I do, and I don't look down on them. I want to protect them, to tell them, don't let posh people see you do that. They will think less of you. I don't. I'm on your side. Trust me, I'm your only hope. They're going to despise you anyway, but be hated because you're strong and defiant, not because you're common. I mean downtrodden. <laughs> And the reason I hold fast to my knowledge about knives is that that is the limit of my grasp of etiquette. Knife not like pen, pudding not dessert, may I use the lavatory, not can I have a dump. <laughs> I'm just middle class enough to worry about not being middle class enough. I'm jealous of people from a clearly defined background. I hate snobbery and I also hate when people flaunt their humble origins to impress. They say... Well, Jeremy, speaking as someone from a traditional working class background... And I say, could you just tell me how much is in my current account, please? <laughs> it annoys me because if I were from a working class background, that's what I'd do, but I can't. I'm also envious of my friends who went to Cambridge, especially the ones from working class backgrounds, because they get to be privileged and bitter. How cool would that be? <laughs> I chose not to go to Cambridge. The reason I chose not to go there is that they chose not to offer me a place. <laughs> there was no way I was going to humiliate myself by just turning up and starting to unpack my things. And the reason they chose not to give me a place was not that I had the wrong accent or background, but that I wasn't clever enough. But that doesn't mean they were right not to give me a place. I wouldn't have been any bother. I wouldn't have got in the way. I mightn't have understood everything, but I'd have appreciated it in my own way. <laughs> and it would have given me a head start in the arts, definitely. People deny it. My Cambridge friends say, oh, if anything, I think it was a disadvantage. No, bless them, they're wrong. Any sort of an advantage is always an advantage. <laughs> saying a Cambridge background is a disadvantage is like saying... If anything, basketball is harder for tall people. <laughs> because everyone expects more from you and then they resent you. And, and what they don't realise about tall people is that we're so painfully shy. <laughs> Having said that, I deplore inverted snobbery. It is not socialism. Conservatives say socialism is about envy. It is. I envy conservatives because they have no principles. It must be great. <laughs> A life untrammeled by integrity or doubt, but you shouldn't condemn someone for their upbringing. There's no point damning David Cameron for his background. The most damning thing you can say about a member of the Conservative Party is that they're a member of the Conservative Party. <laughs> if people know that and are still prepared to vote for them, I'm at a loss, frankly. 
A Daily Mirror might as well give up on stories that go... Former friends who knew Tory Toff Lord Snooty Cameron when he was at top posh school Eton report that he had caviar and other posh food delivered to his dormitory window by a private helicopter flown by a poor street urchin. <laughs> it doesn't matter that Cameron went to Eton. Humphrey Littleton went to Eton and he was a bloody marvellous man and a great socialist. Attack Cameron for relevant things. He's not allowed to like the clash and he's not allowed to like the jam. Not because he's a public schoolboy. Joe Strummer was a public schoolboy, but because he's a Tory. And <laughs> Tories aren't allowed to like the clash or the jam or the pogues or Jarvis Cocker or Radiohead or the Smiths or the specials or the beat or the undertones. <laughs> Tories are allowed to like Natalie Imbruglia. <laughs> What's offensive about the poshness of Cameron and Osborne is that their ideology serves the interests of people like them. And they say, we've all got to make sacrifices, when the only thing they ever sacrificed was first years. <laughs> What's most interesting about a person is not the class they grew up in, but how they play the hand that fate deals them. It's very easy to sit in judgment on the mistakes of people who had very few opportunities to start with. For example, Gordon, you grew up in the herring-infested slum tenements of Edinburgh. Uh, actually, Jeremy, I went to a private school. Well, yes, but I'm sure it only appeared once every hundred years. <laughs> It's also easy to assume that people from humble origins will behave in a certain way. One should neither fear nor infantilise people just because they grew up in social housing. They won't necessarily turn to cannibalism. <laughs> and part of growing up is taking responsibility for our actions. For example, the abused who becomes the abuser is a stereotype deeply offensive to all the abused people who don't become abusers. Not everyone in Ireland has become a priest. <laughs> Neither does having had a hard life automatically make you a better person. It can just make you mean-spirited, especially if you've done very well for yourself, as we see in this extract from a classic northern sitting-room drama. Hello, mother and father. I've just come back from university, where I've listened to bebop and become a socialist. <laughs> darling. I did wild things in my youth before I met your father. Wild things? Bebop? Socialism? Stuff and nonsense. Stuff and nonsense. I'll tell you about the working class. Oh, yes, father. Do tell. <laughs> I grew up in a mining community. My father went down the pit. He was the salt of the earth, that man. He was a fool. The day I left school, I bought a lump of coal for fourpence, did it up, and I sold it for 20 guineas. <laughs> With that, I bought my first coal truck and went door to door, buying up the coal and burying it in the old quarry up by Oldsworth Fell. <laughs> by Christmas, I'd built my own coal mine. <laughs> the other pit owners were so rattled they wanted to buy me out, but I waited. I waited until the harsh snows of January forced the price of coal sky high, but still I waited. By August, I was starving. I tried to sell one of my kidneys, but the butcher wouldn't accept it. <laughs> Instead, he took pity and left scraps out for me. The fool. I would have let me starve. But how did you amass your fortune? He got a job with my father's consultancy, closing hospitals. <laughs> 
happened to all the coal? I left it there to remind me of where I came from. And how did you get that scar? A Viking blinded me. It was a paper cut. Shall I have Bessie serve our mint juleps on the veranda? Oh, Mother, why ever did you marry such a man? I don't know, really. I suppose I'm the boss's daughter, and it's the done thing in drama of this kind. And, Curtin, thank you both. Thank you, thank you. That was intense. I'll give you a few moments to break character. I'll do my best. I wasn't in character. Oh. <laughs> now, it's easy to assume that someone born into money has had an easy life, when it's quite possible that they were emotionally deprived. Look at Princes William and Harry. Now, I don't want to compound the embarrassment of Harry after he was caught dressing up in his mother's mind-clearing clothes. <laughs> because although it's easy to dismiss him and his brother as freeloading nitwits, neither had an easy time of it growing up. Their parents had weird upbringings themselves and gave them a weird upbringing. God rest her soul, but Diana was not a good mother. I bet she never met her kids from school and they only needed picking up three times a year. <laughs> What kind of life is it to grow up in boarding schools, kenneling for the rich? <laughs> education plays a huge role in the way we grow up. The Education Secretary, Michael Goh, speaks of increasing opportunities for bright working-class children. This is because of the right's belief in rescuing a handful of brainy oiks so as to ensure that the remaining poor are genuinely undeserving and that the undeserving rich are backed up by the intellectual muscle of deserving arrivists who have enough inside knowledge of the poor to lord it over them efficiently. <laughs> That's not how Gove puts it, but then I'm not sure that Conservatives themselves truly understand their own opinions. <laughs> now, uh, Rebecca, you've written articles about education. Have you ever thought of opening your own school? Oh, God, no. It's the sort of thing purposeless women do when they don't have a rich husband to buy them a shop selling local art. <laughs> They're on the parent-staff association, then the school fate committee, then they become a governor, and you know that if no-one stops them, they'll end up a magistrate. Yeah. <laughs> And yet the government doesn't really care who runs a school. Businesses, faith groups, local nutters. I would have thought we should be looking for some sort of consistency so that kids don't disappear into various weird worlds aged five, meet up again at 18 and not have a clue what one another are talking about. Some kids are actually homeschooled. Now, the results are encouraging. The evidence is that children educated at home spend much more time reading because they have no friends and seek solace in books. <laughs> School isn't just about academia, it has a social role. Kids need to mix with other kids. For one thing, picking up coughs and colds from other kids is important for developing our immune systems. Children today grow up in homes that are actually too clean, and this is impacting on their health. As soon as people have a baby, they disinfect everything in sight. It's a baby. Babies are people who willingly defecate in their own clothes <laughs> and devise their own individual expression to celebrate the fact that they're doing it. <laughs> not that fussed about hygiene. <laughs> Your health visitor will give you some helpful practical advice because she's part of the health service which is socialised and has no interest in making us buy more things than we need. But the business community needs us to spend money on things we don't need. So there is advertising telling us we're dirty people with dirty homes who are putting our children at risk. Which do you think is more germs, this chopping board or your toilet seat? Now you should know straight off that it's going to be the chopping board because the answers to those questions are always counterintuitive. 
which do you think contains more fat? This pork belly or this tomato? It's the tomato. <laughs> you might be surprised to learn. No, I won't be surprised to learn. It's the tomato. I know how these things work. And in fact, used correctly, a toilet seat should not be particularly dirty. The parts of my lower body that actually touch my toilet seat have every reason to be quite clean, being safely locked up in my pants all day. <laughs> it's your hands that are really dirty. When you walk onto a hospital ward, they don't ask you to rub an alcohol solution over your buttocks, do they? We were talking about the importance of mixing with other kids as we grow up. As well as being good for our health, it's an important part of our education because we learn that not everybody is exactly the same as us. If that is, we go to a school where not everybody is exactly the same as us. All too often, parents panic that the local state primary isn't going to stretch Hermione academically, so they lose the plot and transfer her to a private school, but then they feel guilty and try and convince you that there's a really nice mix, by which they mean there's one mixed-race child whose father is an architect and whose mother does that lovely thing with her hair. <laughs> And Tabitha's dad's a plumber, although he's actually one of those well-spoken plumbers people like to hire, because although they don't know how to make water go through pipes, they did study photography till their trust fund ran out. <laughs> the local state primary school is fine. Hermione will be happy there, and she'll have a friend called Yusuf. In fact, I'm sick of property programmes where they say... Jonathan and Fiona need to move out of London because their children are about to start school. Hold on there, Kirsty, you stuck-up Tory cow. <laughs> just, just back up and justify that sentence. All right, I accept that Jonathan and Fiona can't hack London because they're weedy milksops from Gloucestershire who just came to London to take our jobs but ultimately hope to move back nearer to where they grew up because actually they didn't grow up. But why subject their children to life in a village? I've seen Straw Dogs and it was a documentary. <laughs> when, when their kids could grow up in London, one of the great cities of the world, what do they think is going to happen to their kids at a London primary school? They're not going to get leprosy or be recruited as child soldiers. Yes, the school might celebrate Eid, but it doesn't involve female circumcision or explosions. <laughs> and they say, I'm not being funny, but some of those people keep themselves to themselves. Oh, what, you mean like avoiding contact with other cultures because of assumptions that you make about them? The great thing about young children is they have no preconceptions about one another. They don't think about race or class. The fact that other children come in different colours means nothing when you've got a purple dinosaur. <laughs> Your kids will think it's great where Jade lives because you get to go up in a lift. And there's no mayonnaise, but they have salad cream, which is really nice. And Jade will really appreciate your garden because she doesn't have one. She won't steal it. She won't organise an illegal rave. She won't drink from the dog bowl because she was raised by wolves. <laughs> she won't pierce Hermione's nipples with a staple gun. She's a nice kid and so's yours because you haven't been able to fill her head with your values, but God help her because you will. <laughs> Because, of course, how we grow up is mostly a matter of how we are brought up. It's very fashionable these days to attribute anything and everything to genes, but it seems very clear to me that most of our behaviour results from our upbringing. 
True, there are all those stories about twins separated at birth, but the ones who are completely dissimilar don't get much press, just as no one ever answers the phone and says, That is so weird. I wasn't thinking about you just now. <laughs> and in terms of personality, genetic traits are combined with environmental ones from the moment we're born. It's impossible to have a personality immune from human contact, unless perhaps that's what causes estate agents. <laughs> My point is that the circumstances in which we grow up shape our future. So, it's best to grow up in modest comfort with principled and loving parents who set boundaries while encouraging us to follow our dreams, apart from the one about being naked in class with everyone staring at us. <laughs> so far, so good. But as I mentioned earlier, when we talk about growing up, we don't just mean how we are raised, we're talking about a process within ourselves. Now, when someone says, someone once said, it usually means they're about to misquote a line of Shakespeare with which they're personally unfamiliar. Someone once said, if music be the breakfast of champions, play on McDonald's. <laughs> but I believe that the following prayer was first written by Reinhold Niebuhr in the 1930s. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Niebuhr was an American theologian and inventor of the fridge magnet. <laughs> the serenity prayer could be said to be an instruction to grow up. When we say, why don't you grow up? We mean, why don't you have the maturity to act like an adult, Mr. Smelly Pants? <laughs> And by being an adult, we mean taking responsibility. But the prayer leaves open to interpretation which things can be changed and which can't. For example, it's fashionable to say that you can't change other people, you can only change yourself. Of course you can change other people. You can amuse them, encourage them, invigorate them, unnerve them, demoralize them, and make them want to kill themselves. <laughs> because you're bipolar and that's the effect you have on the people around you. Some people believe that as we grow up, we become realistic and realize that we can't change the world. But it's probably more the case that as we get older, we lose confidence in our ability to change the world because we lose confidence in general. And yet it's probably actually easier to change the world than to change your own life. Because if you set about trying to change the world, other people might help. From this day forward, I'm going to start each day with a more positive mental attitude is not a rallying cry other people are likely to get behind. <laughs> and it's a resolution that will last only until you find the milk is off and wish you'd never been born. <laughs> but if you try and change the world, you might just do it. Rosa Parks was already 42 when she refused to give up her seat to a white bus passenger in Montgomery, Alabama. Today, she would be thought of as very young and quite foxy in those glasses, certainly by me. <laughs> but in those days, she was considered middle-aged, yet her actions sparked the bus boycott that gave a vital boost to the civil rights movement and brought Dr. Martin Luther King to national prominence. Now, she was an activist who knew she'd have backing for her stance, but was also very brave. As the figure head of a radical black movement at that time, she was risking death. In modern Britain, there are citizens afraid of voting for the Green Party because people might think they're mental. <laughs> How many of us who venerate Rosa Parks 55 years later would show her courage today? A number of us travelling on buses have thoughts such as... 
I'd like to smile at that toddler, but her dad will think I'm a paedophile. And? I probably ought to tell that lady her hair's on fire, but I don't want her to think I'm interfering. <laughs> and? I think the person next to me is dead, but I'm sure they'll sort it out at the terminus. <laughs> people don't like to cause a fuss because we're not confident that other people will support us. Other people are busy. Those people who are prepared to take direct action for a cause nowadays are mostly under 30. They're not immature, they just haven't had all the stuffing knocked out of them. They haven't had their soul drained by trips to Ikea. <laughs> and they're showing great maturity because they're taking responsibility for the world they live in and are not leaving its problems for others to sort out. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about David Cameron's big society, by the way. His clarion call to us all to join in the running of public services made me think of a tannoy announcement on a plane that goes... Could any passengers with navigational experience please make their way to the front of the aircraft? <laughs> What I'm talking about is not doing the government's job for it or letting it offload its duties to the private sector, but rather making it do the right thing. Environmental campaigners trying to stop an airport being expanded are taking more personal responsibility than those of us who just do our bit by recycling. Especially those of us who just recycle our old material. <laughs> won't take on big business to reduce carbon emissions, so they offload all responsibility onto us as individuals. They tell us... Only put a little water in your kettle so that the element burns out and you can never use it again. <laughs> Choose an energy-efficient boiler and ask the engineer to share your bath. <laughs> use both sides of toilet paper and then insulate your loft with it. <laughs> It's good to cut your energy consumption, it's the grown-up thing to do, but direct action is even more grown-up. The least grown-up thing is to say like a sulky teenager that nothing you do will make any difference. Environmental Armageddon can be prevented if we all grow up and face the fact that we can't carry on as we are using the world as a big plaything and an inexhaustible supply of treats. If we leave it to government, they will just bring in a new generation of nuclear power stations because nuclear power doesn't produce carbon dioxide. So that's the choice we'll face as a world. Would we like our environmental catastrophe to be sparkling or still? <laughs> But having whipped you all up into a revolutionary fervour, I'm afraid we've run out of time to effect real change. We could seize control of the radio station, but the show's recorded, and I'm sure they'll edit that bit out. <laughs> As they did when a narco-syndicalist briefly held Pebble Mill in 1972. <laughs> Before we go, there's just time to see the results of the experiment I began earlier. At the start of the show, I supplied Gordon and Rebecca with some old magazines and craft materials and just asked them to express themselves. Now, it'll be interesting to see how differently they've done this because they've both been through exactly the same radio programme, so in terms of environment, their experience has been the same and differences between their behaviour are more likely to be innate. Now, looking at what you've done, Rebecca, could you just talk us through it? Uh, yeah, well, I've made a, a decoupage piece incorporating images that resonate with my own childhood, toys, animals, um, party mm -hmm. food, yeah. using pictures of people of all ages, building up layers to illustrate the transition to the age I am now. Great. And uh, Gordon? Well, Jeremy, I went through the magazines... Drawing breasts on all the women and penises on all the men. Of course. <laughs> right. Well, to Gordon and to all you listeners... 
Good night and grow up. <laughs> Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation was written by wise old bird Jeremy Hardy and featured the ever-youthful Rebecca Front and the inner child of Gordon Kennedy. The program was coloured in by Jeremy Hardy and adult supervision was provided by David Tyler. The program is a positive production for CBeebies.